Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now? for week two of Trustafuck. I'm Dorian Linsky. <laughs> for any new listeners joining the podcast, out of a mixture of curiosity and schadenfreude, we get together every week with a special guest to analyse the biggest stories in politics and milk them for cheap laughs. Glad you could join us. Today, the news is so juicy that we're going to get stuck right in and postpone icebreaker chat about other stories until later in the episode. So let's quickly meet the members of our anti-growth coalition. <laughs> Ian Dunt is a columnist for The Eye. Hi, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. Have you been suppressing growth this week? Yes, yes, in almost every way. Roz Taylor is a writer and Podmasters contributing editor. Hi, Roz. Hello. And our guest this week also joined us for the last Tory party conference in 2021. He was formerly Justice Secretary MP for South West Hertfordshire, and he's currently a lawyer and columnist for the New Statesman. David Gork, welcome back. Hello, good to be back. Uh, I hope we have enough to talk about. I think we will. <laughs> good, good. Liz Truss has just delivered her conference speech, so we'll be talking about that and why this year's conference felt a little like a ghost town. Then we'll try to make sense of Trussonomics. Does she have a mandate for such a radical platform, and can she even explain it? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, from the ladies not for turning to the European Super League implosion, we'll look at U-turns and ask why they're considered so toxic. First this week, the Tory conference began with a whimper as polls put Labour up to 33 points ahead, 38 points in the red wall, according to Redfield Wilton. Then Kwasi Kwarteng announced that he was dropping his catastrophically unpopular plan to axe the top rate of income tax, a U-turn that the worst person in Britain, Suella Breverman, blamed on a coup. <laughs> We get it, Kwarteng said, but do they? Uh, David, let's start with the, the big question. Is Liz Truss's premiership over before it's, it's even begun? I think it's going to be a struggle. Um, I mean, the, the Conservative Party is left with this problem that, that it, it probably does want to remove her, but can't find a way of doing so. And so, which, which is not unprecedented. Um, in in recent times for Conservative leaders and the Conservative Party. And so as a consequence, the, the chances are that she will carry on in office. And in office, you've always got a chance. You know, things might move your way. Um, but she is very, very badly wounded um, by the events of the last couple of weeks. Um, her authority is is extraordinarily low. She doesn't have any political capital. Um, and so it's it's hard to see how she can make a success of it. But but you know whilst you're still whilst you're still in there fighting, you've you've still got you've still just about got a chance. Do you think that without the mini budget fiasco, um, there could have been a honeymoon period? Because it's very unusual for a new prime minister, even one who then goes down to a crashing defeat, not to enjoy a few weeks or, or months of goodwill from the electorate. Yes, I think I think. 
she probably was due um, a bit of a honeymoon. Not a great one. I mean, you know, for a start, the economic conditions are terribly difficult. The way she came to office wasn't that emphatic. But I, I can remember talking to Conservative MPs on the Wednesday evening after she took over. Conservative MPs, by the way, who were not her natural supporters. And there was a sense of, you know, we want to rally round. This is the leader that we've got. You know, she's the only leader we're going to have before the next general election. And let's make the best of it. Her first Prime Minister's questions performance was seen as being above expectations. Um, then on Thursday, you had the energy price freeze, and and that would, in normal circumstances, of course, been huge news and mm. and and a and a popular measure and a sort of sense of ah, oh, here's the government coming in to help us, and you know it might have reminded people of COVID and furloughing and the support there, but of course, you know that for for obvious reasons that didn't get any news coverage at all on the evening, um, and then then say so really the first point at which she has made an impression as prime minister has been the mini budget and everything around that and that is a sort of terrible terrible start so so just quickly you said the the only leader that they like to have for the next election there's already obviously rumblings of a you know a, a, a leadership challenge although apparently no idea about you know who would replace her which is a familiar problem do you think that that's are you saying that that's just nonsense and that there's no realistic way that they could change leaders again this side of an election i think it's difficult i was more in my comment there i was more thinking about what this was the mood in in oh right yeah, on yeah. september the, the the 7th i think it was um now of course things have got so desperate that people are testing that hypothesis <laughs> i mean it seems to me that the the very obvious thing the conservative party should do is say that we've got a problem with market credibility we just need some competence. Everything that Rishi Sunak was saying about Liz Truss's plan over the summer turned out to be correct. We should all rally around Rishi Sunak and put him in. And he's yes, he's he's a flawed candidate, but every everybody's flawed, and that's our best bet. And I suspect that most Conservative MPs think that. Um, and if they could, you know, that's exactly what they would do. But you don't need, you know, a majority is not good enough. You, you've got to have an absolutely overwhelming majority because, you know, other people will go, well, if there's going to be a leadership election, then, you know, why should I stand aside for Rishi Sunak? And, um, and you know, Suella Braverman will sort of say, well, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be the flag waver for the flag bearer for the right. And Penny Morden might go, well, maybe I should be the One Nation candidate. And, of course, there's someone else who will think, I, you know, if you're going to change leader, then then really it ought to be the person who won the last general election, and um, and Boris Johnson will have another run at it, and he's not going to stand aside for it's a, Rishi Sunak. It sounds like being stuck in a nightmarish time loop <laughs> where it's just it's what we had uh, last time, but again, um, Ian, it's been said that trust combines the humility of Boris Johnson with the charisma of Theresa May. Um, <laughs> what did you make? Of her, of her big speech. Was she, as M people would say, moving on up? No, 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 it was shit. Um, and I think what happens is that because we're so, we all think, and I mean by all, I mean literally everyone, thinks very little of her and her presentational abilities and her communication abilities, that there's a real kind of pent-up desire to be like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Because you go into it thinking yeah, it's going to yeah. be the worst thing in the world. And so they were like, oh, it's not that bad. And you just look at it and you think, like, if this was any other politician... You just say that was a fucking terrible speech, like really, right. really bad. Mm. And that's what it was. And that's not just presentational, although it is worth repeating that, again, presentationally, 
I mean, she's certainly the worst MP. Uh, MP. I mean, arguably that too. You know, in no, my lifetime. You know my feelings on this. <laughs> yeah. There's another one. It, she's she's really very very bad just at the basics of of speaking, let alone communicating in terms of the content of the speech. Just the endless fucking barrage of platitudes. The complete absence of an intellectual presence, and then the tempo of her speech. She just can't land on a line to give a speech. She doesn't know when people to applaud. <laughs> And so has, it has, was bad. She has a curiously annoying sort of little smile, which one of my Twitter followers said was like when her granddaughter gave her a picture. <laughs> There's a little pleased smile in between the lines. Oh, that's interesting. See, recently I've been thinking about those smiles. So you think about it for Patel, who I think can't help it. I saw a video because of you, because of the origin story thing we're doing of George Bush the other day. Mm. And I remembered George Bush's smile and I thought, actually, George Bush probably could help it. And he really was kind of smiling the whole time when he was saying all this fucking dreadful stuff. She, I think, probably could. But then, to be honest, all of her facial expressions are quite disturbing because she, she has about eight or nine that she cycled through during the speech today. And every one of them, whether they're happy or serious or hectoring or grim, they're all pretty bad. See, all of that, I think, would be forgivable. You know, just like Gordon Brown wasn't particularly charismatic right, and get sure, over it sure. if there was intellectual substance behind all of it. And like the truth is, you see people coming out there going, you know, at least we've got a clear cut battle of ideas now. So like, no, we don't. She doesn't understand Thatcherism or Reaganism or laissez-faire. I, I, I don't see it. Like, I, I, don't, I, I don't really get that there's a coherent argument there apart from tax cuts are good. Well, we're going to discuss that in, the, in part two where we talk about trustonomics. Um, I did want to bring up, um, and I'm going to quote this, uh, the, the, the idea of the anti-growth coalition. Which includes Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP, the militant unions, the vested interests dressed up as think tanks, not the IA, that's a good one, uh, <laughs> the talking heads, the Brexit deniers, Extinction Rebellion. They taxi from North London townhouses to the BBC studio to dismiss anybody challenging the status quo. From broadcast to podcast, easy now, they peddle the same answers. It's always more taxes, more regulation and more meddling. Now, I thought that I was thinking here of Thatcher and the enemy within. Um, which is how she described the miners' union. And I thought, well, well, the kind of, the advantage of that was that it was a small part of the population. What this seems like is an enemy within which is well over half of the population. And that seemed to me a strange sort of strategy to say that the enemy is all of these people. Yeah, I mean, it would be, but she's never, I don't think she's going to talk about these guys much more again. Because they won't have any purchase. Like, can you imagine anyone in any pub anywhere going on about the anti-growth coalition? It's no, such you a can't. Dead phrase, isn't it? This is, is that... totally unmemorable. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, mean, just, I, I can't. I can't believe that she thought that that would resonate. You get, you, you get what she's going for because she's going for the same shit that Theresa May and Boris Johnson did, and you know they're actually. But we know who she's talking. She, I mean, she, you know, she's talking about us basically. <laughs> you know, and people like her. I mean, I get it. It's like they've tried it. You know, you raise you raise a sort of imaginary enemy and use that to conceal your own ineptitude that got you into the situation that you're in. You can see what she's trying to do and why she's doing it, but it's just even there forming the words and what kind of thing would find purchase in the public imagination. She's just too inept to really make it work. Um, and Kwasi Kwarteng uh, gave a speech on Monday um, where he, he's just seems to have sort of generic sort of Etonian vibes to me. There's not <laughs> a certain sort of arrogance, a certain impatience with you for not getting how clever he is. Um, I mean, it was neither. I mean, the, the very, very muted response to that. Do you think that he is going to be sacrificed in the near future or, or is trust wedded to him because her entire message really is economics? And therefore, if you get rid of your chancellor, you're sort of cutting off an arm. 
Yes, but eventually she'll do it just because that will be the last thing to do before you yourself have to go. It's like the blood sacrifice. You would cut you off your arm, if, for example, if you were trapped under a rock, like in that film. Like in 27, 27 Hours or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah yeah, 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 exactly. It's just like, oh, like those old, you know, the king and his favourite, and then eventually the parliament's like, you're going to have to hand over your favourite and we're going to kill him. And they don't want to, usually because they're sleeping together or because they're friends. And then they do, because it's the way to save themselves. Right. And I think that's where she's going to end up. By the way, I mean, for the record, he is a perfectly smart guy. I mean, I might not agree with the stuff. He's a perfectly smart guy. I think the thing that you're seeing with him now is the emotional response to just an, a nation-level drubbing mm. on a daily basis and that kind of background fear in your head of, oh, God, am I going to be remembered as, you know, the person who didn't even get to do a budget before crashing the economy? I, wouldn't, <laughs> the, you know. I mean, to be fair to the guy, I would not enjoy that. No, that's going to that's gonna start, yeah. I would not enjoy just not just the nation, but the, the international financial markets, <laughs> major institutions. <laughs> like That would be like a rough week for me. Um, Ross, before the U-turn, Michael Gove uh, popped up, called the top-rate cut not conservative, attacked Truss's obsession with grammar schools, warned against a real-time cut in benefits. Do you think he was doing that in the confidence that he was speaking for, for a lot of Tory MPs? Yeah, certainly quite a lot. But I mean, what the hell did he expect? This is what I find extraordinary. You know, this party is not the Conservative Party that won elections in 2015 or 2017 or even 2019 when, when Johnson won. It, to suddenly realise that you have yanked your party away from the, the values and the institutions that help to define it shows a certain naivety when you've been in government all that time. Um, there is really not much, if anything, left of the kind of one nation conservatism that is really what he's talking about here and which Cameron liked to pride himself on trying to personify. You saw this in the sort of tone of the speech today. There was no attempt at inspiring unity, which I was expecting. We're all in this together. We can all get through this together. There was, there are individuals and they will start businesses and that growth will lead us out of the mess we're in. There was absolutely, given, given, the, given the focus during the morning period that we just had on the country being united on coming together. There was none of that today. Well, it's Mass strange, isn't it? Coming, coming through COVID, coming through the death of the Queen. Mm. You think there would be some appetite for some more unifying. Yeah. Things. And yeah, instead, she sets up this, you know, as we were saying, this, this uh, anti-growth coalition. Uh, we predicted uh, that Truss's cabinet choices, not just us, a lot of people said this, uh, left a lot of disgruntled MPs on the back benches, not just Rishi Sunak supporters. Uh, there are rumblings now about opposing fracking. Even uh, Penny Morden and Lord Frost uh, agree on, on, on rising bene raising benefits in line with inflation. Um, Jake Berry, uh, the leader of the House, has been talking about removing the whip from rebels, which obviously, uh, as David will know, uh, Boris Johnson famously did over Brexit. But I mean, it seems like they would have to remove the whip from an awful lot of MPs. Are these are some of these policies already dead? I don't think that's a strategy that will work. Um, I think what we'll see is a gradual erosion. Well, I mean, it's already started, but but even erosion of her authority as more and more MPs rebel, and the more rebel, the more feel enabled to rebel because there's strength in those numbers. They've seen that she'll cave. 
because she's already done it over 45p and they know that she will have to do so again. And what have they got to lose? When they're looking at these massive Labour leads in the polls and they're think, seeing, you know, 30, 33 point leads, they're thinking, well, you know, we're screwed at the next election, so I might as well rebel now. There's no benefit to staying on board with this project when this right. project is falling apart and so unpopular in the country. Um, David, you were up at the conference doing an event on Monday, correct? I was, yes. I was yeah. doing um, I, I was doing an event for the European movement with Michael Heseltine. Quite possibly oh. the, the people there weren't necessarily representative of the, uh, <laughs> of the membership as a whole. But yes, that's what I was doing. Well, you've been to a, a fair few conferences. Um, the, the hall during Liz Truss's speech uh, seemed uh, uproarious and packed. Um, during some of the other speeches, uh, a little emptier and sleepier. Um, how did this one seem to you, both when you were there and, and, and sort of watching on, on TV? Is it, is it an unusually subdued conference? Are there an unusual number of MPs just not showing up? Uh, yes, I think that 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 is true, and this is more from from talking to MPs who are there and who have not been there, um, as as opposed to um, my my experience on Monday. But yeah, I mean, I, I I know of MPs who pulled out over the weekend. You know, they were going to go up but couldn't face it. Um, and, you know, with the knowledge that um, if you're there and you're wandering around the conference centre, there are loads of cameras and you're going to get doorstepped and you're going to be asked, what do you think yes. about X, Y, Z? And, 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 you know, they didn't want to be on camera, um, to do any of that. And, and, you know, that, that really is quite striking. There were a fair few MPs this morning, which I was watching it, um, on television and, um, you know, they, they, they've got not just the cabinet there. So, that that was something but yeah look i mean this, this is a party that is deeply demoralized they don't have a clear agenda and they don't have a leader that, that, that the country trusts and who they trust in terms of, of of judgment um and the tories are polling in the mid-20s and there's these quite startling this happened with startling rapidity there was a poll that came out today which showed that that, that labor was ahead by over 10 points in rural areas which is just you know extraordinary so, I mean, this seems like there are things that could take it even lower um, over the winter. I mean, like, how bad could it get, do you think? It, it, it could get very, don't, very Don't bad. ask that question like you're not enjoying it, Dorian. <laughs> Dorian. <laughs> so, no, and expand at length on just how awful. I did not. I could have used the phrase extinction level event, and I did not. So, no. I'm just, I'm, like, open question. Well, okay, let, let's let's do the, um, you know, let, let's sort of step back for a moment and say, at the moment, opinion polls are likely to reflect you like a referendum on the government um and in that sense the fact that they're getting sort of like 20 to 25 percent is is remarkably good um <laughs> but but when it comes to the general election it'll be a choice between two options right uh, and 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 that that will move things along and and, and will help them and i don't think the conservatives are up against the labor party of the electoral appeal that, that tony blair offered in 1997 um, but I, I'm also reminded of, of of that era in that this hasn't quite been Black Wednesday and our rejection from the ERM, but it's felt a bit like it and a sense of a government that's lost economic control and lost the confidence of the markets and been humiliated. But the difference is that after the ERM, um, we then had lower interest rates and a strongly growing economy 
and things actually brightened up. And the Conservatives got remarkably little credit for it, maybe because their favoured policy had been blown out of the water. But but mm. but the, the economic conditions were quite good in 1997. The reality is the next couple of years are likely to be very, very choppy. You know, we've already got a cost of living crisis with energy prices. Um, now add on the fact that people are going to be worried about their mortgage payments, you know, several hundred pounds a month in many cases. So that is going to feel pretty ropey. Um, now, look, in, in the end, there is still a sort of sizable centre-right, right-wing vote out there. And, mm. and I, don't, I don't think the Conservatives are heading towards sort of extinction level results. Sorry to disappoint. Um, right. But they are, they, are, <laughs> they, you know, they are at the moment on a trajectory to have a very, very heavy defeat. Ian, Wen Kuateng's uh, whole mini-budget, um, which is now, I notice, being just referred to as a budget, mm. was polled recently. Individual policies were popular, all of them apart from the top rate cut and lifting the cap on bankers' bonuses. Because voters, I mean, voters do like paying less tax uh, mm. on the whole. Is this, do you think, the Tory version of Labour's 2019 manifesto, that the components are popular, but the overall message is disastrous? Because that's the sort of... It's a curious thing because you can point to that and people, people like that. And yet when you put it all together, it's, it bombs. Well, partly it was the reaction, right, from the markets rather than the content itself. Secondly, and, we should, and I know this is going to sound like the kind of thing that a sort of anti-growth conspiracist would say, um, but the public don't really know what the fuck they want with tax. Okay, they, they, they think, you know, that classic line of like the only tax rises that they support are those for other people. And that is basically how they think. And then you think, oh, do you want to pay less tax? Yes. What kind of public services would you like? Well, I'd very much like the public services of Sweden. Thank you very much. It's yeah. like, how would you like to tally these two things together? You know, you might resent stamp duty, but then you don't want a re-evaluation of council tax, right? You feel bad about, you know, national insurance, but you don't have it with income tax. I mean, if, if you were really to try and fix our tax system, which urgently profoundly needs fixing, you would start upsetting lots of people who would say that they want a much simpler, more more open, more transparent, comprehensible tax system. So the truth is, they don't know what the fuck they want with tax. When it looks like you've got a bad market reaction off the basis of tink tinkering around with them, then they're going to judge you for it. Uh, Ros, Johnson was a populist. Truss is not um, and doesn't seem to be trying to be. If all she can offer is, is, is free market dogma, basically, um, and then a sort of little bit of of, of boosterism. Where does she think the votes are going to come from? It feels like we've we've thought so much over these last few years about the shape of the electorate, what people want, what is the winning offer? You know, why did Johnson succeed in, in sort of tallying a kind of a larger, a larger state with, you know, social conservatism, so on and so forth? This that I, I do you understand the electoral logic of this pitch? Uh, yeah, I mean, Johnson was all about bread and circuses. Yeah, he was typical populist. Truss, on the other hand, thinks that Britons feel they are held back by red tape and high taxes and things that are, you know, stopping them from being the uh, free marketeers that they really are. And you saw that in the anecdote that she gave today about her first pay packet, how shocked she was to see how much the tax man was taking, which would have been, by the way, in about 1996 or before. So, you know, under a under a Tory government. But uh, leave that leave that aside. But of course, at the moment, people, I don't think, feel held back by those things. What they feel held back by is the difficulty of getting things from the state to mm. which they rightly mm. feel themselves entitled, like a GP appointment or the operation that they need or, you know, to be able to take a train to, to, to Manchester. 
and which the state has, seems to have pretty much given up on providing. They feel insecure at the moment. And when people feel insecure, they are not crying out for a less interventionist state. They are crying out for the state to do something to make them feel more secure. She is essentially diagnosing an ailment that does, does not exist at the moment. And it's the wrong time. You know, if Britain was, if Britain was in the middle of a massive boom and we had great public services, I could kind of understand this approach, but it so obviously isn't. And I mean, it seems like the job of, um, you know, giving sort of red meat to social conservatives forced to swell a problem, but she seems to have overdone it. She's basically shoving people's faces into an abattoir. Um, <laughs> she, she, she seems to hate everyone, like immigrants, lawyers, the poor. Like, there's an extraordinary event with, uh, with uh, Chopper. I've forgotten his real name. Christopher Hope. Christopher Hope, thank you. And it was like, is there anything that she she doesn't hate? And so would you say that she's perhaps overshot on that front? Well, Pretty Patel is a hard act to follow, let's face it. Um, and she has she doesn't appear to have any original policy ideas. So she is doubling down, especially on the Rwanda scheme. Mm. I mean, the Rwanda scheme has not achieved what it was supposed to do, which was to deter migrants from wanting to cross the channel on small boats in the first place. So she has taken the approach that the migrants obviously don't believe it yet and they need to be shown that she is serious about removing them to Rwanda. And that's why she was on about wanting to see this uh, the picture of the plane leaving on the front of the telegraph. But the point is the message has to go out that Britain will not tolerate illegal migrants. So she is doubling down on the existing policy, which, of course, it has not worked and will not work. It's also it's like a poison magnet, isn't it? Because you can tell you could tell by the way that uh, both Truss and Sunak didn't really talk about immigration during the leadership campaign, that both of them probably thought I'm sort of all right with about this level or maybe even a bit more. Um, and that is indeed the impression you get of what she wants to announce. And so as long as you hold up the Rwanda policy as this just look at what bastards we are, your bastard proof badge, basically, mm. then you then you've got the space to be a bit more liberal behind the back room with your actual sort of economic immigration policy. Yeah, and, and, and that she clearly wants to do that. You know, that's part of the growth plan was to to try and uh, liberalise that. And it's pretty well top of the list that business organisations ask for government. You know, so we've got a huge mm. labour shortage. So let's, you know, let's expand the list of people where we can bring them in. And I think she's supportive of that. You know, that that's, that is her politics. You know, she's, she doesn't like restrictions in this area. Um, but that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, the idea that this is a you know, great growth plan and we're going to deliver on all of it. Well, you know, some of it's going to be attacked from the left, but some of it's going to be attacked from the right. And whether she can she mm -hmm. can dare go ahead with a with a more liberal immigration policy when you've got Suella Braverman, you know, banging on about Rwanda, I very much doubt. Now for a quick breather to take in some of the other news this week. Uh, in um, polls in Brazil had the leftist former president Lula well ahead of Jair Bolsonaro in the presidential election, but it was uh, surprisingly close and the vote will now go to a second round. How are you feeling about this? Not great. This wasn't supposed to happen. And we were and we've been reassured for years now. I mean, do you remember right in the depths of COVID, you know, those reports you get from Brazil of like, my God, what he's done here is so fucking appalling. You know, they'll get him out. And then when it came to it, we saw something quite similar to the kinds of things we've seen in this country and that we've seen in the US over Trump. And we don't know exactly why they underestimated Bolsonaro's support. It could be the sort of, you know, the shy Tory effect that we had here in the 90s. It could be more likely that there's demographics that they're not capturing. Either way, they massively underestimated it. So now it goes to a second round. 
The trouble here is that Bolsonaro has been playing, I mean, almost fucking step by step with the Trump playbook. So he spent months trying to sort of ridicule and undermine the institutions, especially the electoral institutions in Brazil, saying it's all rigged against me. He's prepping it to to go off. About 30 percent of his supporters right now, you know, don't trust the vote counting, don't trust the, the, the courts. So on that basis, if it's a very tight result at this stage, I think it's going to be worse than it would have been if, if you just had Silver winning very, very easily in the first round. So if Silver wins, I mean, great, I mean, Silver fucking deeply flawed and corrupt to the point that he spent a year and a half in prison. Um, on his own terms, he's better than Bolsonaro. A, a victory would be good, but it doesn't mean that Bolsonaroism is going to be going anywhere and could, you know could quite easily flare up in precisely the sort of way that we've seen in the US in the months after the vote. And I think that I think that I mean, the reason why I'm personally so involved with, you know, what happens in Brazil is because of the kind of the environmental disaster of Bolsonaro on the Amazon, that this is one that affects the rest of the world, not in the sense that he's going to do a Putin and like invade a neighboring country. But that it is a calamity. Uh, Roz, back in the UK, Dominic Cummings thinks he's found the cheat code for British politics yet again. Um, what is his big brain solution this time? Is it Bismarck? Is he going to resurrect Bismarck? <laughs> well, he almost only would if he could. Um, he's long predicted that Liz Truss would be a disaster. Uh, he long, you know, called her a human hand grenade. And now, of course, he wants to completely write off the Conservative Party. He, wants, uh, he says the party, as we know it, is finished. The Tories are dead. What he envisages for the future is not, you'll be unsurprised to hear, a Starmer administration, but a kind of, you know, you know a new startup, a new party, a new movement, a vote leave style uh, organisation that would express the true wishes and true desires of, uh, of Britons. And, of course, having been the mastermind, if you like, if you can call it that, behind the Vote Leave mm. movement, he thinks that uh, he is the man to do it. And uh, we, shall, we shall see what becomes of that, because in general, attempts to start up new British parties have not been successful recently. But on the other hand, while the party itself often dies off, like the Brexit party, like UKIP, the values and ideas that it embodies can get sucked into existing parties. So we, will, we shall see. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next this week, as well as the 45B U-turn, Kwasi Kwarteng has had to bring forward his next fiscal statement from November to late October, and backbenchers are fuming about spending cuts. Trussonomics, a word that might not find its way into the dictionary for posterity, <laughs> is in chaos. But what is it? Uh, Ian, let's start. Growth 
Trust is very into growth. Mm. Growth, growth, growth. Unlike us, we fucking hate growth. We've been conspiring against growth for years now. Fucking growth. Um, but but she, she did there's a riff on Tony Blair's education, education, education. Well, actually, growth, Starmer, growth, growth. Starmer did the riff, right? And then she nicked it off him. Or maybe never heard his speech in the first place. But he did the growth, growth, growth thing. Which in and of itself was not a very clever thing to say. And now it's twice as not clever. Um, but I was thinking that even, even in Dragon's Den, the contestants have to provide these sort of figures and projections and they get very sternly asked, like, you know, and what's, uh, what's your projection for, like, the fourth quarter of year two? Um, that was amazing. I, was, I haven't that, watched it for I a while, so yeah. I don't have Duncan Bannatyne still on it. <laughs> I never want to um, hear that voice again. It's like a kind of, like, angry Scottish <laughs> yes, fisherman. It's Duncan, Bannatyne. it's Duncan Bannatyne. Um, so do you understand, coming at this in good faith, do you understand what, <laughs> the growth plan is. Yeah. Oh, haven't, you haven't been listening. It, the growth plan is to cut taxes. And then, but yeah. then, step, step two. Right. No, that's, you don't need that. You just need to cut taxes. So I suppose it's like, because you could have cut, cutting taxes could quite legitimately be part of a growth plan, you know, if you were to sort of target it correctly and blah, blah, blah. But it's not like, growth doesn't just happen because of fucking taxes. I mean, that also happens, you know, because you have... I know this is also a, a reprehensible thing to say, but access to other markets or because your economy is going at full steam, people want to be involved in it or, the, you know, there's opportunities or, you know, there's stability that means that you can invest while thinking, well, actually, this is a safe environment to be investing in. Something that we haven't really had in this sort of bizarre cycle of two and a half year administrations that, that we're stuck a big in. Big infrastructure projects, part of that. Yeah, I mean, sure. Well, we, that's actually the one sort of sole victory that we've had recently is the opening of one or two big infrastructure projects. So, I mean, you know, it is not just about let's cut taxes. And I don't think anyone, I mean, nobody seriously thinks that it is. And, and that includes the theorists that they're, that they're talking about. Because I'm wondering about this because it seems like a bad idea, but then I've got my, you know, lefty biases. Um, so I'm thinking, is there part of you just thinks, you know what, this could... This might work, even if you oppose it for all these other reasons. Okay, so let's say let's say this thing formally that if you cut taxes, you are going to increase demand, right? I mean, that's just the classic. You know, this is the reason that we you know would increase interest rates or whatever. You've got more money splashing around; people have more to spend, and so you're going to help stave off. Uh, you're going to help a bit stave off a recession that will be coming. Except, of course, that the knock-on effects of this has been so pernicious for people's financial situation that that sort of might neutralize itself. But you have to think about, like, what is the economy that you're, you're actually trying to build? I mean, it, it would be much more interesting to pass on to David, who has experience of the Treasury. Mm. But there's lots of criticism, for instance, around, you know, the Treasury's approach to spatial investment. And do we have this sort of bias towards London? Because your, your existing cost-benefits analysis will always bias towards it. And in fact, you can improve the economy by, by addressing that spatial issue. That's the kind of challenge to Treasury orthodoxy that people have been asking, admittedly, from a centre-left but not exclusively a centre-left perspective, that could provide you with something that would look like a long-term plan for growth. Just sitting there and going, without anyone checking it, we're going to cut all the taxes, doesn't seem to me to be a particularly creditable example. Yeah, David, you were at the Treasury under David Cameron for, for seven years um, in various roles. Um, now you've got the sort of current Conservative government um, accusing this period of managed decline in a fool's paradise. Um, <laughs> Like, how does that, do you feel, do you feel wounded? <laughs> I, I don't feel flattered, let's put it that way. I, mean, there's, um, I don't think it's sort of great that, that the whole period has been wiped off. I mean, I would argue if you look at our recent economic history, we've got sort of three periods. We've got the, the global financial crisis, obviously the economy shrunk a long way, but was quite badly damaged and growth struggled for a period after that. 
we then had a period from about 2012 to 2016 where in fact the UK economy was growing as fast as any major developed economy in the world. Then something happened in 2016 and we had quite a lot of uncertainty and, and then we sort of muddled through for a long time with low disappointing growth. Um, so I'd sort of like to sort of defend, um, nobody else does this, but I'd like to defend that sort of period. There was a period where the UK looked as if it was not spectacular growth, but internationally up there. Um, and, and also this idea that growth is suddenly a new idea that no previous government of, of any description, you know, the idea that you know, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair weren't worried about growth and David Cameron and George Osborne weren't worried about growth. I think we have had a period of time where growth has been downgraded as a political objective. You know, sovereignty has counted more, control of immigration has counted mm. more. Um, and, and in that sense, I sort of welcome the move towards talking about growth. I think that is the right question. That is what governments should be trying to address but i think it's just too simplistic to think oh if you just cut taxes all taxes um and if you um deregulate that's suddenly going to have a transformative effect and and i think the government is is on to have a slightly embarrassing moment when the obr um comes forward with its next growth um forecasts because probably those growth forecasts will be downgraded in part because of international conditions but in part because interest rates are higher than they would otherwise be and that is the consequence of the the mini budget and also the obr will probably be fairly brutal in saying that they have not revised up any pro projections for growth as a consequence of the growth plan right. because that's what they always do you know they're, they're they're quite cautious about this and just sort of issuing a press release doesn't get you a sort of extra half a percent of GDP. And that will be quoted back, you know, in, in interviews in future. Ah, Chancellor, you know, Prime Minister, the ABR is saying this isn't going to make any difference at all. Uh, Liz Truss did your job after you left yeah, the Treasury. Yeah, she was my uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury. What, what, was your, what was your impression then? Was it that she was harboring a deep resentment for Treasury orthodoxy at that point? Or has all this rhetoric come as sort of a shock to you after, afterwards? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that obvious at that point. But remember what her job was, uh, was controlling public spending. Uh, and the Treasury, the Treasury orthodoxy is in favour of controlling public spending. So, mm -hmm, so in that right. sense, you know, her, the specific job that she had, she was, she was quite aligned with, with the Treasury. Her problem is that she thinks if you, you know, go down this sort of, you know, Reaganite supply side economics, you know, cuts and taxes, there'll be huge uh, behavioral impacts that are very beneficial. Or, or if you deregulate, then that will free up enterprise and do all sorts of things. Now that there, the treasury tends to be more skeptical. I mean, they'll, they'll share her views on, for example, planning reform. Um, uh, and I think they're right to, uh, in terms of there, there is some opportunity in terms of, of, of reforming planning. But again, you know, the Treasury, much more cautious. They're not going to sort of believe their own hype. Um, you know, you just do these good policies and immediately you have you have benefits. They've they've got experience of the economy and they know that you know pulling a lever doesn't immediately result in the benefits that you hope for. This has been called an IEA sort of government, possibly by me just now. Um, how popular do you think that this this particular, this sort of quite extreme free market conservatism is within the party, especially, um, I suppose, with the with the 2019 intake. Like, how, mu how much appetite is there for what Truss and Quartet are doing? There's always going to be an element of the party that's an audience for this and enthusiastic about it. 
Um, but I would have thought many, if not most, um, 2019 Red Wall MPs, to use the shorthand, you know, they, they know where their votes came from. And, um, you know, this is partly about a, a, a realignment of British politics and a move towards the politics of culture, not the politics of economics. Now, I, I'd rather have the politics of, of of economics, not culture. But but Liz does appear to be trying to reverse that realignment that worked very nicely for the mm. Conservatives in 2019. Um, and you know, to come back to your point of you know where does she think she's going to build that coalition of support? You know, I mean, unless you are delivering sort of spectacularly better growth than anyone can believe that the Labour Party will deliver. It's, it's hard to see how that's going to work. Roz, I think you brought some attention to this chart by the FT that shows that on economics, uh, not, thankfully, on, on culture and social issues, trust is further to the right than even Bolsonaro or, or Giorgia Maloney. Um, so really kind of out on a limb there. Now you've got the ironically uh, appointed levelling up secretary, Simon Clark. Um, he was the one that, that said we've all been living in a fool's paradise um, and that the government will have to trim the fat, which means sort of more austerity. I mean, ha- firstly, how much more is there to cut um, after the austerity of the previous decade? And is there any political room for this? There isn't much more to cut at all, if anything. The idea that austerity went away is odd because we didn't see a big rebound in public spending under under Johnson, except, of course, that was necessary due to COVID, the furlough schemes, the spending on the NHS. But in no way was austerity reversed. You know, councils did not see a sudden surge in their funding. Education did not see a surge in its funding. And, of course, inflation makes it even harder to cut stuff further than it would otherwise have been. And this comes back to the point we were making earlier about populism and how Trust thinks she will she can push this through. I think the explanation that, that I can see for this is that Trust simply doesn't see the need for a mandate for her policies. Uh, you saw that when she was talking over the weekend to Laura Kunzberg, when uh, Kunzberg asked her, what mandate have you got to do all this? And she didn't appear to understand the question. And the reasoning behind that, I think, is because as someone who believes in a very, very small, as small as possible state and believes that government should always get out of people's way, mm. she sincerely thinks that getting out of people's way in, you know, the classic Reaganite formulation is her mandate to deliver because she fervently believes that people left to themselves are the best judges of what they should be doing. Well, we had Luke Trill from More in Common on recently and he kept talking about something that came out of focus groups, this phrase shambles Britain. Mm. which refers to that, this sense that things aren't working and you can't get appointments and you can't mm. get your passport, etc., etc. Et yeah. And I thought that this is a thing that I think people care very much about. And it, like, it's, it's not necessarily about, oh, if only the government would get out of the way. It's like, if only, if only I could basically get these basic services that I want. But I want to come to you, David, on, on that point. You know, during Truss's speech, Greenpeace protester held up uh, a speech saying, who voted? for this? Uh, The answer being, of course, literally nobody outside the party membership. Now, we know that under the British system, a new party leader becomes PM. They don't have to go to the country. Um, So they sort of inherit a a mandate. But has has she broached the limits of how much you can change and still claim that that mandate? I think it's um, 
it's a political problem, not a constitutional problem. And I think we should sort of view it in, in, in that light. And by departing quite a long way from what Boris Johnson was doing, I think she, she is running into the sort of political limits. And it makes it, for example, that much harder uh, to get legislation through the House of Commons. You know, MPs are much mm. less likely to sort of follow her. They, you know, they, they, they view her as having less authority. And, you know, opponents or potential opponents are sort of quicker to pounce. I mean, it's been really interesting to watch Nadine Dorries' um, uh, comments this week, you know, very quick to say, well, you're going to have a mandate for that. And that's not right. So, so I think... You know, although constitutionally, if she's mm. got the command of the confidence of the House of Commons, she's entitled to do that, and she can kind of make an argument that, well, look, you know, you British people elected a Conservative majority, and I am the leader of the Conservative Party, and circumstances perhaps have changed since 2019. We've had COVID, we've had Ukraine. The reality is that it makes it much, much harder for her politically uh, to do things, and MPs are emboldened political finesse and skill and subtlety and and recognition of the sort of limits of of her powers and capabilities um would, would mean that she would be avoiding some of these mm. problems where she's making it as much of an issue as she has ian we're going to discuss u-turns later and probably talk a little bit more about um about this uh, 45p u-turn um Quanting is very annoyed that people say that he cost the bank of england 65 billion pounds um, is he right to be annoyed? Is that is that figure inaccurate? Can you just sort of briefly explain what the bank had to do? Yeah, the figure is inaccurate, but he's not right to be annoyed about it. Um, the figure was just the top limit of what they'd be willing to spend. Um, they're not having to spend anything like that much to do this. And there's a certain degree of calm there. I mean, however, there was concern. I mean, the concern seems to be dying down, but over the weekend sort of in the pages of the FT, there was quite a lot of concern of what would happen at the cliff edge of the two-week period that they were buying these bonds. And we don't know what's going to happen then. So it's possible that we'll end up spending that much. But that was just basically how much they were prepared to spend, not how much they've actually spent. The reason he doesn't get to be cross about it is because his own prime minister was on the airwaves the sort of days beforehand, banging on and on about, you know, how you're going to only ever spend 2,500, you know, maximum on energy, when she knew that that wasn't the case, forcing companies like British Gas to put out corrections to her... So like, well, you do have to get all of your shit together before you start judging people on a slip of the tongue about numbers. And he certainly hasn't done that. Um, Roz, let's look at Labour. They're ahead on economic competence as well as everything else, I think. And what does Starmer and Reeves need to do to cement this advantage as, as Blair and Brown did in the 90s? Do they have to do something active uh, rather than just sort of sit back with popcorn? Yeah, I mean, I think they do. As David was saying earlier, a Starmer government does not have the feeling of you know, inevitability that Blair did. One of the most important things will be to show empathy with people, because I think that is what Truss is particularly bad at doing. She mouths phrases, as we saw today, about understanding that people are finding it difficult. Mm. But she has a great deal of trouble convincing people that she uh, does understand and does care. I think another thing they need to do is double down on their uh, green plan and their renewable energy plans, which feel like the right things for now and feel like a way of offering growth and moving yeah. forward, which Truss is clearly not doing. And feels new. And feels new and feels right for the times and and 
she has clearly turned away from, I well, I would describe it as Johnson's very superficial commitment to green issues, but others might disagree. But she has moved away from that. I don't see how we can remotely achieve net zero with her plans at the moment. But as David pointed out, you know, the, the, the Blair and Brown actually inherited an economy that was going in the right direction. Um, and so there was there was the opportunity there to do some quite ambitious things, to spend money on these kind of, you know, sort of innovations like Shore Start, for example. Um, are Starmer and Reeves going to be thinking, oh, th- suddenly having to kind of scratch things off the uh, off the kind of manifesto whiteboard uh, because the, the economy just won't sustain what they want to do. Uh, Starmer acknowledged as much as in his in his speech last week when he said that there would be labour things that they wanted to do that they wouldn't enable, immediately be able to do. I think the most important priority will be to sort out the crisis in the NHS. Turning things around does take time. And yeah, again, renewables, I think a big insulation programme would be something else that they would also want to put their efforts into. No, they won't be able to do anything. But on the other hand, such has been the incompetence of this government that an air of competence and control will, I think, go go a long way. And I mean, in better economic times, right, Brown kept the purse springs pretty tight in the Mm. first term of New Labour. It was only after that first election re-election that they actually started to spend a bit more. So it's not it's not unusual that Labour governments come into power going, we promise you we're going to keep control of the money. And then once they've established that, they start doing a bit more. Mm. Finally, David, to wrap up this section, uh, be honest, could you, do you see yourself voting for this version of the Tory party <laughs> if it remains like this at the next election? Well, at, at the last general election, um, I was in such a sort of quandary as to who to vote for that I, I resolved this problem by running myself. Um, and, and then, and then I had, then I had someone to vote for. So I'm, I'm not current, that's a lot of that's not currently my plan. Um, but but at the, at the moment, I sometimes wonder if I'm going to have to go to those lengths again. Could could you see yourself voting Labour? I, I, no, I, I I can't see me voting Labour. I've, I've got quite a lot of time for for Keir Starmer as an individual. And um, what worries me, sorry, this is opening up a much bigger sort of conversation, is essentially mm. that the 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 liberal centre right, which is what I believe in, is is just not represented anywhere, and I think that is going to be that is not to the country's advantage. Um, and and you know how that's resolved is is a matter for another for another day. So um, I, I remain politically homeless. Next up, a question from our most curious of listeners in But Your Emails. This week, Ross Schonfeld asks, as the Tories hit their fiscal event horizon, has this point of no return, which, easy now, and the reporting of it highlighted the country's lack of economic knowledge, what would the panel recommend we do to raise our understanding of the nation's finances? Um, Ian, I don't know whether he's talking about what he means by that country's lack of economic knowledge. I mean, what do you think of the coverage of this? Has it been accurate, illuminating? You see, the funny part is that I think that sort of economic specialist journalism is one of the few sort of bits of specialism that actually has managed to survive pretty well in in journalism, mm, yeah. mostly because there's fucking money for it. You know what I mean? Like if you just take the FT on its own, yeah. you know, because most people that read the FT don't pay their own subscription. There's loads of money coming in. They make really good ad the money. The Economist does all right. The Economist does all right. I mean, look at the ads on the FT. Like I forget, whatever, you know, if you want to Google, Google, next time you see a, a watch, 
being advertised on the cover of the FT. Google how much that fucking watch costs. This is good money. And so because you've got that market there, it's quite easy to have economic journalists. I do think there's a bit of an issue with the gap between the sort of professional coverage that you get in journalism of this type and the sort of consumer coverage that you get in journalism of this type that isn't really properly addressed. So I'd say bonds are explained. Have been, I've seen them explained pretty well this week. Uh, you notice that everyone gave up when it came to the Bank of England intervention because what they needed to get into with the pension mm. funds was, was basically like the repo market and stuff. Like that. And the repo market is... Fuck, I, I spent two days of my life when I was writing the last book talking with economists being, please explain it to me but again. That, that's <laughs> probably that's why it hard. came out that basically they were shoveling £65 million in banknotes down a well. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was like... That, that, that makes sense. Uh, Ros, what's been your your impression? I mean, very few people uh, understand how gilts and things like that work. So it's 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 very hard to it's very hard to make that connection between what is happening in the markets and what the Bank of England is doing, interest rates aside, um, and for example, what's happening to your savings and what's happening to your pension. And I think that's a that's a gulf in understanding, which is which is hard. I mean, one of the biggest things about economics is such a massive, massive subject. And you know, there, are, there are individual finances and there is there is the uh, government's finances, there is the nation's fan, uh, finances, not the same thing, or everything that we call macroeconomics as mm. opposed to microeconomics. And then there's a city, which is yet another thing again that is very, that is very complex and they all operate very differently and that they were all interconnected. And most people have no idea exactly how. I mean, if this is a question about what can I do to sort of bone up a bit, um, and this speaks to what we were saying earlier about financial journalism. A lot of it is very good, but almost all of it is behind paywalls. And yes. that is a problem. Yes. I mean, the economist costs six ninety nine off the shelf. That is not cheap. Um, and the subscription is also very expensive. Mm. If you can get it from your local library and read it, by all means do so, because you know I think uh, reading The Economist is incredibly helpful to understand how people, what, how to think about economics in a way you may not have done so before, even if you disagree with a lot of the conclusions I often do. There's a good book called Macroeconomics, which doesn't sound promising, but it's good, uh, by a guy called uh, Gregory Mankiw, and that is available as a PDF, as a download. So you could download that onto your Kindle if you want to, and that gives you a sense and an idea of how, of, as I say, the governments, the nation's finances and how that works. Um, David, as someone with, with like years of, of treasury experience, I mean, did you feel that the gist was being conveyed, that the right details were being brought to, to, to bear, that, that it was being understood? Um, not as much as you would, you would like, but I mean, that's the case with not just economics, but kind of all public policy areas that you'd find mm -hmm. that frustration. I suppose I slightly take issue with the um, the premise of the question here, in a way, because you know, what what has happened? Yeah, people don't necessarily understand the the details of gilts and bonds and and, and how they work and, and and what have you. But in a way, this this is really quite a simple story that the government sort of took too too many risks. You know, it kind of. I mean, yeah. there's there's fiscal conservatives are often criticised for sort of saying, oh, you know it's like a household and you've got to live within your means and it's more complicated than that. And it is more complicated than that. But every now and again, it is a bit like a household where, you know, if you, if you borrow more money than you, you can reasonably manage, there is a reaction. You know, somebody is unhappy, which is why it's so politically damaging for the government because people can see what's happened. Uh, no time for Under the Radar this week. Sorry, that is the show. Thanks to Roz. Thank you. Ian. Thank you. And our guest, David Gork. Thank you. 
And thanks to you for listening. We've got some big news ahead of us for the podcast. You'll be hearing about it very soon. Meanwhile, stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. After our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of our brilliant and loyal supporters. Hello from me to Mike Smith, Jim Whitby, Thomas Gonzalez, David E. Curran, Nick Magill, Graham Clark, Damian Fenton, Sophie and Ian Trinder, Kieran Daniela and Christian DeFeo. Hello and a big thank you from me to Nathan Vale, James Winfield, Adam Barnett, Lisa Wakeman, Ben Eggleston, Helen Glanville, Craig Friswell, Andy Gibson, Nigel Bunyan, Stephen Rayner and Stewie Lee. And finally, thanks for me to Alan Catlin, Tom Hunt, Ed Nichols, Matt Hughes, Kola Balagun, Moni Petrov, Adrian Falar, Paul Dockery, Joanna Malt, James Nicholson. Take care, see you soon. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor and Ian Dunt. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranevich with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, the U-turn, political poison or wonderful testament to the importance of changing your mind. Ian, what do you think defines a U-turn as opposed to uh, a change in direction, you know, rethink, the quiet dropping of a policy? Oh, yes. Interesting. Is it like it's like the naive, ignorant thing that it's not really like the same action has taken place. You've recalibrated. But what it means is, but bad. Well, I wonder whether <laughs> like it, has it has to, to be, be has to be forced rather than chosen because governments do sometimes change tack and maybe they, they have a white paper and they think about it and then they go, oh, do you know what? Or, you know, we can't afford it or now is not the time mm-hmm. or we don't have mm-hmm. the support in the commons. Um, but something that maybe has to be forced in the full glare of, of, of the media? Well, certainly has it? to be forced. I think that that is, it's not like, no one's going to have like a working definition. And that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now, every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, what else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going forward, ever forward. Thanks for listening and see you next week.